Welcome to the first ever podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Bohm. My guest this week is Eric Appel. He's a comedy writer and director who's done his fair share of television, and I get to pick his brain about how it all works. He started out writing on shows like The Andy Milanakis Show, Human Giant, and Crank Yankers, and worked his way into directing segments for Funny or Die, onto episodes of TV shows like The Office, Silicon Valley, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The New Girl, Son of Zorn, and seriously so much more. His IMDb is crazy. Uh, This episode is full of great stories and insight, plus a real behind-the-scenes discussion on how an episode of The Office was made. Uh, I hope you enjoy. Uh, As always, hey, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, I'd really appreciate you doing so. If you enjoy it, uh, if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing it, all that sort of nice stuff, it, uh, it helps the show. So, uh, I hope you enjoy. Here's my conversation with Eric Appel. This is the first ever podcast. Eric, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. I appreciate you being here. This is, this is exciting for me. I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, yeah, for listen for listeners at home, um, my, my fiance, uh, worked with you at, uh, the production company. And, um, when I was just thinking about people I wanted to talk to, uh, you came to mind. So, um, you know, she was nice enough to get us in touch. So, uh, so yeah, thanks. Thanks on short notice for doing this. Oh yeah, no problem. And, uh, thank you. And thank her. I love your fiance. She's awesome. Oh, yeah. She's, she's the coolest. I'm sad that she doesn't work there anymore. I, uh, yeah, it's, uh, the, the transition's wild. She's, uh, she's just doing a lot of freelance. She's, uh, she's actually working from, from home most of the time, which is nice because obviously we're in Glendale. So that, that, uh, that commute is kind of nice for her not oh, to have to do. Boy, every yeah. Day. yeah. But what a weird, fun time to transition out of a job oh. into something else. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And you're on the, you're on the West side, right? Um, I'm actually, I'm currently in my office, which is in Burbank. Um, oh, I, yeah, I rent, rent an office in Burbank. Uh, but I live, but I do live on the West side. Okay. So I have like an unnecessary commute (laughs) that I give to myself for some reason, because I used to live in Burbank and I guess I just really like it here. Um, Okay. I'm, I'm born and raised from Burbank. Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, as, as you can tell by being there it's kind of a it you can imagine it's kind of a weird place to grow up <laughs> yeah like, yeah my um, kids almost grew up here <laughs> we moved then we moved them oh okay so yeah they would have been kids who would have had to go to burroughs high school i'm assuming that's yeah, where I went. yeah yeah which oh, is the awesome. uh, which is the high school that they filmed the wonder years at which uh is just no one way, of those really oh wow. yeah so well they remodeled it right so when I was just leaving is when the construction started. So it does break my heart a little bit that it, you know, looks kind of nothing like it did oh, that's on the funny. original TV show. There's maybe just there's like little pieces. I think like the gym and the probably just like the the, the uh, football field are about the same. But um, yeah, every everything else is. Uh, that is, is the strange real. thing about I, I'm from the East Coast originally, but that's the strange thing about living in Los Angeles is that everything around you is from like the TV shows and movies from your youth. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, exactly. Everything has been a location for something. Exactly. And specifically Burbank. That's the weirdest thing where it's like, you know, uh, like uh, I lived around the, I grew up around the block from Burroughs, right? So, um, you know, all my childhood, it's like, oh, cool. There's the, you know, up the street is the hotel from True Romance. And then, 
um, the the Burger King parking lot next to Toys R Us uh, that, you know, I would hound my mom to take me to every now and again um, is the parking lot that Marty McFly skates out of in the opening scene of Back to the Future. You know, wow. Like, yeah, yeah. All of those. That's things. So wild. Um, I worked at a at a record store that is no longer there, but it was on San Fernando called Backside. I it was like my longtime job outside of high when I left high school. And uh, but like San Fernando Boulevard, if you watch The Lost World, the uh, sequel, you know, to Jurassic Park, that opening. Oh, is that where the T-Rex comes? Yes. That's supposed to be San Francisco. Oh, that's (laughs) hilarious. Oh, now I have to rewatch that. (laughs) Yeah. If you rewatch it, you'll see all. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of those businesses aren't there anymore. But but yeah, the uh, the uh, the whole street that the Tyrannosaurus just like bombards down is. uh, Yeah, that's. Supposedly San Francisco, but it's San That's Fernando funny. Boulevard. Yeah, the office that I rent um, is on Olive Ave. It's right next to Ribs USA, which I'm sure you know. Oh, yeah. You know, you know where that is. I'm directly uh, next to Ribs USA. My office is a storefront. I I, I happened upon this. Uh, it was like an acting studio that was closing down, and the rent was super cheap. So I have a, <laughs> so it looks like a store. Uh, but it's just my office. I have a lot of looky loos that like oh, appear sure. at my window and knock on the door. And <laughs> I keep. What do you locked, do here? That's exactly what. Ha- I, that's a conversation that I have far too often. Um, <laughs> well, I, I guess pre-COVID, it was a conversation that I had. No one's really knocking lately. Um, but uh, but yeah, I would have to go to the front door. What do you do? And then I tell them, you know, I'm a director, writer, and right. there's been times when people say, oh. Uh, Really? Um, can I give you my card? Oh no! <laughs> like, oh, I, I need to start telling people that I'm like an accountant or something. <laughs> yeah, something that that just a yeah, you're a vacuum repairman or something. Yeah, like that. exactly. Man, uh, so you're originally you, you mentioned from the East Coast. You're from Endicott, right? I am from Endicott, New York. Yeah, which is it's funny. Like, I I, I think in my head, um, not being from the East Coast, whenever I think of any city that's not New York City, my my gut is to say oh you're from upstate like i just assume everything else is just considered upstate so when i looked at it i was like oh it's it's like kind of on the border of of pennsylvania right yeah yeah we're like an hour or like 45 minutes north of scranton okay yeah i was wondering if if like scranton becomes then the place that the the family goes to for you know the big for like the bigger city stuff is that is that what you would do <laughs> well no, not really. We had Binghamton, New York, which, okay. which a- a- Endicott's right next to Binghamton. Um, Syracuse is like north of us. And then um, Pennsylvania is just south of us in Scranton. Um, you know, I'll tell you, we didn't really go anywhere. <laughs> okay. I basically like stayed. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of stayed in Endicott for most of uh, most of my youth. Um, um, it's Big, big trips my family would take, I guess, would be down. The, we would drive down to Disney World every couple of years. Oh, OK. Uh, um, but as far as like going into the big city, like Binghamton, Binghamton had like a has a big uh, Binghamton University is there. So we would have like bands that came through town. So like I wouldn't have to travel that far to like go see a concert when I was a teenager. OK. I mean, I guess really cool fringe bands and stuff. I would have to go to New York City, which was only two and a half, three hours away. Um, but like most major arena rock bands would come to uh, come to Binghamton, which is like right next door to Endicott. Oh, interesting. Okay. 
Uh, it's funny when I was looking up stuff from, from Indicot. First off, I, I want to congratulate you because you're listed as the first notable person oh, from on Indicot. The Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're above. You're above Dio. <laughs> wow! Is, yeah. Wow, that's crazy. You're, yeah, you got Ronnie Ronnie James Dio and also uh, Russell Buffalino, who was in, uh, attached to the Jimmy Hoffa um, disappearance. Um, that's crazy. Yeah, you got you're you're above them. So congratulations. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, I know, like Rod Serling is from from the area. Okay, I think Rod Serling's from Binghamton. That was like the most notable. I remember when I was in high school, I made some video and entered in some like video making contest, and it was like a the Rod Serling Award. I won. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I was like a junior in high school. Interesting. <laughs> Uh, so, but I'm curious, like growing up there, uh, what was your first experience, uh, like connecting with, I guess, either comedy or just television in general? Like what, like, do you remember the first thing you were like obsessed with as a kid? Um, you know, it's funny, uh, as a fan of TV or as someone that would eventually make it, I think those are like two different things. I Mm -hmm. consumed an awful lot of television and movies when I was a kid. Um, my mom's sense of humor was like a big influence on me. My pa- my parents were divorced. I grew up with my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, she showed me like Monty Python and the Holy Grail at a really young age and young Frankenstein and old SNL, um, and episodes of the monkeys when like the monkeys were on MTV. I think in like the early eighties, they started showing old monkeys episodes on MTV. Oh, weird. Um, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, that was actually the first concert that I went to at the Binghamton Veterans Memorial Arena. Um, it was the Monkees reunion tour in like 1985. <laughs> it's kind of awesome. I, I back it. That's awesome. <laughs> With no Mike Nesmith. Mike Nesmith was not um, was not a part of that tour. But Peter <laughs> Tork, Mickey Dolenz, and Davy Jones were were definitely there. And I think Herman's Hermits opened up. Oh something. wow! <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, that's awesome. But yeah, that was like the the that was the kind of like comedy and stuff I guess that I that I, you know, consumed at like a really young age. M- movies, I was super into Pee-wee's Big Adventure and um Beetlejuice when that came out and Sure. Um I I would say but but I I I had like absolutely no connection to the entertainment industry in my family or in my life. Um so at that age, or really for like all of my youth, I never in a million years thought that I would end up directing TV in Hollywood. <laughs> like, right. It's not even that it seemed like an unattainable goal. It just didn't even seem like a goal at all. Like, right. I didn't think that that's something that someone could just go eventually do. <laughs> right, right. It was so foreign to me. It's interesting that, you know, like you mentioned some of the first things you connected with was was you even mentioned specifically Monty Python, which, you know, it's such sort of off the wall humor, especially for that time. I I feel like that definitely played a a major role with a lot of the stuff you ended up writing, especially early on. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, there's actually have you ever heard of something called moron movies? No. Okay, so. This was this was kind of a big influence on me as far as like really absurd DIY type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in, 
think I was in like fifth or sixth grade. Um, we were looking for a video to rent at Blockbuster Video, and there was just this black VHS uh, case that said "Moron Movies" on the front of it. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, I had no idea what this thing was, but my mom rented it for me on a whim. And it was, it's a collection of these really short, like comedy, really absurd, like comedy skits, like blackout sketches. Maybe some of them are like 10 seconds long. Some of them are like 30 seconds long. And they're all made by this guy named Len Sella. Um, self-produced in his apartment in Pennsylvania. Like he lives outside, lived outside of Philly. And uh, yeah, yeah. And he, he, he used to make these little short films and uh, you know, I, I, I found a lot of this out later in life doing research on this guy, but he, uh, he made these little short movies all, all, all by himself. He's the only one in them. He builds his props, um, and he would rent out a movie theater like in Pennsylvania and have these screenings. And then Johnny Carson um, somehow got wind of this and would like show them on The Tonight Show in the late 70s and early 80s. And oh. then he made this big compilation video called called Moron Movies. And somehow it ended up like in all blockbuster videos across the country. <laughs> it's funny. That's what I was going to say. It's like, how? Did, I wonder how, because that seems so, yeah, like like small circle sort of thing that like would that have gotten such wild distribution like that it seems like a thing a college kid who worked at blockbuster thought it'd be funny to put on the shelf or something right exactly you're like i don't know who was, and i i don't know who was renting this thing um <laughs> you know i i mentioned it to so many people and I, I it's rare that i come upon someone who's like yeah i've totally seen more on movies right yeah um, I, I mean, it's, I'm sure it's a thing that you, it's fun to connect with people on. I mean, it's it was a much larger scale, but uh, I, I was I'm a few I'm a couple of years younger than you, and and even when I to this day meet someone who grew up watching like The State on MTV, it's like an instant bond where you're like, oh yeah, that's like you know that was my all time favorite show. The uh, State was my favorite show in high school or in junior high in high school. Um, and I have now, uh, as an adult worked with almost every member of the state. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) And like every time I've worked with any of them, uh, I, 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 you know, always tell them the story like, Hey, by the way, the state was like my favorite show as a kid. (laughs) Like I had them all taped on like VHS tapes. I had your book. I had, uh, you know, the VHS that MTV released of, of skits from the state. Skits and stickers and yes, and, yes, uh, yeah. I, it's funny for any stay fan. I'm I'm curious to know to know if you could put uh, knowing them personally aside. If you had to choose a favorite cast member, do you think you could? <sighs> it's tough. It's tough. Um, it's tough. I always loved Michael Ian Black. Mm-hmm. Maybe Michael Ian Black was my favorite. Tom Lennon. Tom, maybe Tom Lennon. Tom Lennon maybe was my favorite. I'm, it's I so hard to choose. It's, it's so, so hard. So hard. I, I always, when I really, really think about it, I think I go with an underdog, which is Kevin Allison. Like, <laughs> he has, I mean, he he's just going for it so hard in every single skit. And it's, yeah. it's like palpable. It's incredible. You know, I, Kevin Allison, I, he's, he's actually one of the only members of the state that I have like never 
met in person or worked with. But randomly, a couple of weeks ago, he replied to a tweet of mine. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so you've kind of worked together. So I've kind of worked together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was. Uh, but but it's crazy having like now as an adult worked with, uh, you know, worked with so many people from the state and, and not even like worked. You know, like I've I, not even necessarily directed them. There was a show, Michael Patrick Jan um, was a director on this show called, uh, he was like a director producer on this show called A, a to Z mm-hmm. that was on um, NBC for, for one season. And I directed a couple episodes of it and he was like the supervising director. So I got to work with him in that capacity. Uh-huh. And during one of my episodes that I was directing, while I was prepping my episode, David Wayne was directing an episode. <sighs> Oh my god! So like I was just like hanging out on set with David Wayne, and he was doing magic tricks. He's like really good at <laughs> card tricks. And He's stuff. kind of absurdly good at everything. It <laughs> yeah. seems between oh, magic yeah. and music and everything. Yeah, crazy. yeah, yeah. He could play like every instrument. And he could draw right. really well. Yeah, um, but uh, but yeah, that was just such an interesting experience. I'm like, okay, I can't <sighs> believe that I'm sitting here working with these guys. And then I when I I remember I directed an episode of. Um, Silicon Valley and like David Wayne emailed me to be like, Hey, I just watched that. I just saw you directed tonight's Silicon Valley episode. It was so great. Oh, wow. I remember just like how amazing it was to, you know, get a compliment like that. Yeah. That's someone who who I'm like, you, I'm like, you really have no idea what an influence the state was on, you know, right. It's hard to convey that to someone like how special a show really was to you and your youth. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's ultimately incredibly true. Yeah. So I'm, so you, I read that you ended up, um, kind of going into animation first. Is that, that's true? Yeah. My, my path to becoming a director was sort of a, uh, an odd one. Um, like I said, I had no entertainment industry connections and had never thought that, um, being a, being a director was something that was actually attainable. Um, I was like the art kid in high school or the kid that drew cartoons. I was really good at drawing and I was really into animation. I was really into like Ren and Stimpy and Beavis and Butthead. And I decided to go to school for animation. I knew I wanted to go to art school for something. Um, I had actually for a moment thought maybe film school, but I was like, oh, if you go to film school, you have to like have something really important to say. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there was like little, something little about did film. you know <laughs> yeah yeah right i know <laughs> but i thought there was like something pretentious about film school that i'm like sure. this isn't for me i'm like too much of a goofball to right. uh you know to do something so serious so i ended up going to school for animation and um i just went to this like kind of shitty two-year art institute school in pittsburgh and uh while I was there, I mean, I very quickly realized that, like, oh, I'm, like, really not cut out to be an animator. Um, you know, s- slaving over a drawing board, drawing the same thing <laughs> over and over and over again, slightly different. I kind of like, I like to see results a little faster, I think. I'm a little too impatient. I'm a little too, like, ADD to be an animator. Right. It was like when reality actually set in. You're like, oh, wait, this is the job. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. Right. I like to draw, but yeah. <laughs> but like this ain't it for me. Right, right. So I um uh 
I was dating this girl when I was in college who was from Pittsburgh, and she told me about um, an improv show that she used to go to when she was in high school at the University of Pittsburgh in the basement of the Cathedral of Learning on Friday nights, this show called Friday Night Improv. It was like Whose Line Is It Anyway style short form improv games. Um, The interesting thing about the show is that there was no cast. Um, It was all audience volunteers. So there's people that went every week and that were like incredible improvisers and would go and raise their hand every week and get called on and come up on stage. You'd basically raise your hand. It was like an open mic night improv show. Wow. It was a very unique, weird thing. Yeah, (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah. But I started going to it every week um, and I really became obsessed with it. I'd never really seen live comedy like that before. Um, especially that that you could like participate in. And, you know, for the first several months, I was way too nervous to like get up there. Um, but eventually I started raising my hand and I would go up and I would, I would be doing improv with these people. And I started making friends there. And then me and a group of people um, that I'd become close with sort of formed our own improv group. And we were like, oh, let's... Um, We'd read about like long form improvisation, which is the kind of stuff that they did at like UCB and like right. Improv Olympic. Um, and uh, so I started like doing improv with these guys. Um, and then once I graduated, uh, I, I did finish college, <laughs> um, even though I'm like, I'm never going to use this particular degree. So you ended up, you, you, uh, you graduated in animation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I stuck I have a You stuck it out. I stuck it out. I have a demo tape with some really crappy animation on it <laughs> from like when I graduated. And uh but like right after the 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 summer after I graduated, I decided to um move to New York City with a buddy of mine and take improv classes at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in New York. Um, okay. And that is really what led me led me to what I do now. Let's see. I started taking improv. I started taking these improv classes. This is like, uh, I don't know how much you know about the UCB theater. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm super familiar. Uh, okay. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you're a fan of the state. Of course you probably, I'm sure. Yeah. Of course. And, <laughs> Lots of the, the show and, <laughs> and, uh, Ashley even took, uh, even took courses there doing, uh, Oh, doing oh, that's improv. awesome. Yeah. 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 Um, but no, I've, I've been going to shows there for forever. And the first season of, of, uh, Upright Citizens Brigade is so one of my favorite elements of television of all time. I don't know if you're you're a fan of the oh, show yeah, as well. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I loved I loved the show when I was like a I, th- I think it was, came on when I was like a junior in high school. Um, oh my god! <laughs> it was uh, yeah. So like I I knew about the UCB from their show, um, correct? From, yeah. from the Comedy Central show, and after the show got canceled, like they still had um a, like a page on the Comedy Central website. Um, with like clips from the show that you could watch via real player. Cause I think this is the year 2000, <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. um, very crappy, grainy clips via real player. And, yep. um, they had, uh, they had recorded, um, a live version of ASCAT, which is like the long running Sunday night improv show that they did. And they mm-hmm. hosted this on the comedy central website. So you could like go there and watch this hour long ASCAT. Oh, and, wow. um, and when I was still living in Pittsburgh, I watched that. Like that, that's what really 
blew my mind wide open and I was like, I have to be a part of this theater somehow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was like, uh, it was the original UCB four that were performing and it was, it was Amy and Matt and Matt and, and Ian. And then, um, Horatio Sands was in it. And I think Andy Richter did the monologues and it was like John Glazer. It was like a bunch of Conan writers. I think Tina Fey maybe was one of the performers, Rachel Dratch. And they did just this like hour of improv that was just like so like mind blowing to me. Um, So yeah, I moved. uh, So I moved to the city with my friend. He was interning at Late Night with Conan O'Brien. Okay. Um, It was a, a... my friend that went to film school in Buffalo. Um, so we lived together and I took these UCB classes and, and, uh, over the course of the next couple of years, I was like performing on a house team at the theater. Um, and, uh, it's funny, like so many of the people that I came up with at the theater now are just like, like Donald Glover, <laughs> like we were, like we performed at UCB together. There's like That's ultra insane. famous people that like I was a child with in my early twenties. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, I feel like there's always just like the wave of people that ended up, you know, going on to huge things. Uh, yeah. So I was going to ask you who el- who else was in your world. Um. So let's see. When I was there, like the. Amy Poehler had just got on Saturday Night Live when I when I started taking classes. So she mm-hmm. wasn't teaching at the theater anymore. But like the the senior performers there, the upperclassmen of right. UCB when I first started were like Ed Helms, Rob Corddry, um, Paul Shear, Jack McBrayer, Rob Riggle, um, Jessica St. Clair. Um the people that I was in classes with were like Donald Glover, Adam Pally, uh, Ellie Kemper, Ben Schwartz, Jesus. Aubrey, Aubrey Plaza, like came up slightly after I did. <laughs> like, wow. It's really crazy to think about. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. Um, the, and uh, yeah, so like these were the people, I mean, uh, you know, there was, there were hundreds of us, but Right. Um, that I just spent all of my time with back then. Um, every night I was at the theater for years. When you were there, were you just doing improv or did you take any writing classes as well? Because you obviously ended up going, you started writing on shows um, before directing. So I was doing improv and I was writing sketch comedy and putting it up at the theater. Um, there was like a show on friday nights called liquid courage where you could just like write a sketch and just go put it up in front of an audience oh, wow um <laughs> and uh there was uh yeah there were just like so many opportunities to like do whatever you want comedically and put it up in front of people the theater was small enough back at that time when where there was like that like you could get stage time now right you know it ended up growing and growing and growing and it's you know it's it's a lot harder now, I think, to you know, to get on stage there um, or to have a regular slot at least. But right, back yeah. then, yeah. So I was writing and I was like directing. I, I started like co-directing a couple shows, and then I started directing other people's sketch shows. And uh, then my my roommate, um, I met this dude Andy Milanakis um, in in my improv. We were like in an improv practice group together, and we I lived was going to ask. 
how that how that relationship formed because that's your first that i mean at least on imdb that's your first no yeah that is that is definitely that's the first job that's what sort of broke me in so andy milanakis went to ucb yeah so andy and i uh met in like level one improv class at ucb um started hanging out together um and then i uh we we ended up getting an apartment together me and him and, and another dude and andy would just like sit in his bedroom and make weird videos <laughs> and he was like hosting them on this website this angry naked pat <laughs> i think was the name of the website uh-huh. um, which was like a comic book by this writer brian lynch who like went on to write the minions and secret life of pets movies <laughs> oh my god <laughs> yeah yeah he's like a really amazing like animation yeah, writer um, sure and uh yeah, Andy was just like hosting these videos there and um it was sort of on the fringe of like the Kevin Smith universe. Oh, okay. Yeah. Brian Lynch had directed this movie called Big Helium Dog that Michael Ian Black is in actually. Interesting. And and it's like and it was just sort of involved in that like Kevin Kevin Smith world, on the fringes of the Kevin Smith world. And okay. uh anyway, Andy did this made this video that like Jimmy Kimmel discovered and uh flew him to LA to like be on the Jimmy on Jimmy Kimmel Live back in I think it was like the first year of Jimmy Kimmel Live. And um he just really clicked with Andy and then they decided to develop an MTV show and Andy moved out to LA and his show eventually got picked up like a year later. And uh I was just like, can I like can I write for your show? And he's like because like Andy and I would write stuff together at UCB yeah. and like perform together. I was like, can I write for your show? He's like, yeah. I'd love you to, but that's kind of not how it works. <laughs> like, we right. have writers have to submit writers packets. And I'm like, well, what's the packet look like for your show? <laughs> right. And he's like, well, here it is. You know, it's like you have to write 10 quick hit sketches, which coincidentally are just like what those moron movies things were. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the Full Andy Milanakis show is very much like formatted like moron movies it's all really quick silly stupid absurd skits Um, yeah so anyway i i I cranked out a packet for the show and you know it that my packet went up the ladder and i got hired on like a part-time basis like you know sometimes shows will do this they'll bring in a consultant writer to just like work for a week dump out a bunch of ideas and then go on their way (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, so I like went and worked on the show for a week and another writer who was like a staff writer on the show left to go write for another show. So the, a slot opened up. So I got put in that slot, which then led to me, you know, writing for three seasons of the show. And did you stay in New York for that? Or did you, is that when you moved out to California? So I, I stayed in New York. Um, the first two seasons of Andy's show filmed in New York. So like okay. everyone would come from California at like okay. the whole production, all the crew and everybody would like come to New York to shoot the show. Uh, yeah, I happen to live there. So right. it was a, an easy local hire for them to make. They didn't have to like put me up in a hotel or anything. Yeah, for sure. And you obviously you two weren't still roommates at the time of, of making no, that show, no, were you? No, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, he, he, had, he had moved to, uh, to LA. Um, okay. 
And then the third season of Andy's show, everyone was sick of going to New York to make the show. So they're like, let's do the third season where it's like Andy moves to Hollywood. <laughs> um, so I had started to think about like, okay, I'm, I, I think I'm going to make the move to LA when they do the third season. Um, I think there's like more opportunity out there. Um, so I, uh, let's see, I was planning on doing that. And then I got hired to write for Crank Yankers, um, which is the puppet yeah, prank the, call the prank show. call show yeah. on Comedy Central, which is yeah. also a Jimmy Kimmel show. So at which that is, point, were you just were you like in with Jimmy Kimmel's kind of yeah? Team so world? so yeah. Jimmy Jimmy's brother John Kimmel ran the Andy Milanakis show, and he also ran Crank Yankers. Okay, so he he was like, "Hey, I'll hire you to write for Crank Yankers." I heard you wanted to move to LA. You can come out here and just net, you'll have back to back jobs. So you'll have like six months of employment when you move out, which is amazing. That's the only, I was so broke at the time because you know, you don't get paid much money to write for these like MTV comedy central shows. Sure. I I mean, I I can only imagine. Yeah. Um, So uh, yeah, I actually, I got hired on crank yankers and it was like the job started in one week. So I had to just like pack my car and move cross country and just drive cross country. How was that experience for you? Was, as a, was that your first time like really doing that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was awesome. Driving cross country was amazing. <laughs> like a buddy of mine drove out with me and then he just like flew back to New York. Um, oh, that's a good friend LA. right there. That's a good oh, friend. It was, the, it was the greatest. We still, yeah. t- we talk about now that we're like old. Yeah, <laughs> we talk about maybe doing another one of those road trips together sometime. It was it was a real blast. Did you make the most of it and try to like hit as many kind of like landmarks, or did you just have like kind of a straight shot? You know, we were big fans of the show Deadwood on HBO, okay. so we were like, yeah. "Let's drive to Deadwood. <laughs> <laughs> Let's like take the northern route, and we'll just like drive across and like go to Deadwood. Like, you know, it must be a weird place to visit." Yeah. And, uh, and then we'll like drive down and go to Las Vegas and then let's hit the Grand Canyon and then mm-hmm. we'll like go down to Flagstaff and then hit LA the next day. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. Uh, would you, as I was actually going to ask him, so when you got hired on working on Human Giant, um, did you have a relationship with Paul Shear from back in the UCB days? And it was like a, hey, check it out. We're yeah, working so- together on this thing. So Paul Shear was my uh, level three improv teacher at UCB. Um, nice. And and I used to be the tech guy. I used to do the lights and sound for his improv groups show on Saturday nights. Um, Respecto Montalban was the name of the group. Um, <laughs> nice. Rob Riggle was also in the, that group. Rob Hubel. Oh, wow. Um, so for like two years, like every Saturday, I would, yeah, you know, do the lights for those guys and hang out with them. And Paul was a teacher of mine and, and, um, Owen Burke, who was in the group was also another teacher of mine. So yeah, I was like pretty tight with, uh, I was pretty tight with Paul, um, and, and Hubel and Aziz, uh, Aziz and I like Aziz was like, I knew Aziz when he just started doing stand up. um, like my improv practice group when I wasn't good enough to like be on the main stage at UCB, I was in like a improv group that would like perform in, you know, shows in basements in Brooklyn, you know? Right. Yeah. The DIY one. The DIY shows. Yeah. And Aziz would like do stand up to like open for those shows. 
Oh, wow. That's that's like before he could like get into like the real stand-up clubs. Right. Wow, that's incredible. So, so, it, yeah. so it's like, yeah, like I, I, I really came up with all these people. Um, and on Human Giant, it was a situation that was similar to Andy's show. Like they just brought me in for a day um, to pitch ideas. And they liked so many of my ideas. They brought me in the next day and that turned into a week. And then that turned into another month. And I ended up like just being on the entire season of the show writing. Damn, that's awesome. That's awesome. So I, I'm curious of when um, Funny or Die started, was what was the transition for you going from like, okay, I'm, I'm writing to like now I'm going to be directing? Because it's it, from just kind of assumptions based on looking at timelines of stuff, it, it kind of seemed like when Funny or Die started um, is when you made the change, like or at least right around that same time. Um, was there a certain moment that happened or... How did that go for you? Well, right after Human Giant was when the writer's strike happened in 2007. Um, So I was uh, unemployed, picketing every day and slowly or quickly going broke. (laughs) Because again, it was writing for an MTV show, which did not pay (laughs) the bills. Yeah. Uh, My wife was a barista at uh, the Alcove on Hillhurst in Los Feliz. Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah. And like she was the only one that would bring- Great dessert table. Great dessert uh, table. Or not, uh, sorry, case. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So so after the writer's strike ended- um, I got a call. My manager um, was that I had signed with during Human Giant. He was like, what do you think about? I know you're coming off writing for TV. What would you think about writing for this website? This like Will Ferrell, Adam McKay site. You know, they'd love to meet with you. Funny or Die had been around for about a year, but they were starting to, they had just hired a new CEO and they were, um, I don't know. It was it started as an experiment and then they're like, "Oh, we have like a real company here. Let's start to they take things more seriously, hire some more staff." Um mm. so I interviewed with Adam McKay to be like the senior writer at Funny or Die because I was the only one with TV experience. Um and uh and I took the job. I I signed on to do a year at Funny or Die. Um and I was just to like sort of like may- maybe oversee other people's writing to help just to help punch things up and right. to write my own skits. Really, it was the Wild West and I could do whatever <laughs> I wanted, <laughs> uh, as could any every other employee there. Um, so I really I, I quickly realized like I always wanted to sort of be more in control of the material that I was writing. So I'm like, I'm going to start directing these things that I um, that I write. Yeah. Um, And I know, you know, I as a kid, I made a lot of videos and stuff with my friends. Um, I mean, they're all terrible looking back. Sure. Yeah. Handheld Um, camera. Just you and your friends goofing goofing around. Goofing around. Um, But I'd like learned enough at school and animation about just like shot composition. And I knew how to edit and and just overall like storytelling, plus the shows that I had worked on. Um, I, I had sort of absorbed a lot of information working on those. Um, I bought a couple cinematography books and started studying those. And, and, uh, before long, I just started like going out there and figuring it out and like shooting my own stuff on funny or dies dime, which was, awesome. what, you know, I, I was trying to think of, of, uh, 
of a smooth way of asking this, but I don't know if there is one where it was just like, I'm curious if Funnier Die had just like a big financial backing to where it kind of allowed you to be like, I'm just going to do whatever I want and they're going to let me do it because it's like a, a new company that has oh, big yeah. financial. Was, is, is that kind of what it was? Yeah, it was like Mark Quint, like Sequoia Capital owned Funnier Die. And, you know, it was, I, I think maybe back then their ultimate goal was just like, let's grow this website to be gigantic and then sell it for millions of dollars and then you know we all become richer (laughs) and i mean honestly it it it's kind of the start of viral videos because it was you know i don't was i can't even imagine i can't even remember like how big youtube really was yeah when funnier i started it felt like very ahead of the time yeah i mean i think youtube youtube launched in like what 2004 2005 i think so yeah um yeah yeah funnier die you know was just a concentrated comedy version of YouTube. I, I I think that viral videos had sort of been happening. What Funny or Die did that hadn't been done yet was celebrities. Like n- now, celebrities have such a web presence. Every celebrity has a TikTok and an Instagram right. and a Twitter and a YouTube channel. Um, you know, back then, celebrities weren't quite as accessible as they are now. Right. So it was a bigger deal when they would like, oh, my God, famous people are like showing up and doing these stupid like internet comedy videos that like yeah, I'm I getting mean, a free like I'm getting free content from a celebrity that normally I would have had to pay for or at least like watch advertisements for. Sure. Yeah. No, I I, I, I hadn't thought about that, but you're absolutely right. I remember. I mean, I think we all kind of remember, especially, you know, I think a big example is Between Two Ferns where you're like, Holy yeah, shit, they, they got, you know, uh, Brad Pitt or they got or obviously Obama or someone like that. Yeah. You're like, holy shit on this. That's crazy. You know, I remember in the early Funny or Die days, I used to um, when I first started, there weren't really like producers there. Like everyone ever. We were all pretty green, like. If I wanted a celebrity in my video, I would call CAA myself and I would just ask like, <laughs> and I would like try to like, hey, I work for this Funny or Die website, you know, like Will, it's the Will Ferrell website. Just drop like, Will Ferrell's name. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> and they would always be like, well, is Will going to be in the video with my client? <laughs> well, no, they're not. And it's going to be written by me and made by me a guy that has absolutely no experience and it may very well be terrible (laughs) but but i used to have to pitch these people like um you know if if i wanted an actor to come in that wasn't really known for comedy the sell would be okay this is like going on saturday night live but with zero risk like if your client wants to sort of dip their toe in comedy they could you know Hosting SNL, the eyes of the world are on you. Oh, um, if you just make a yeah. funny video for this website, the worst that's going to happen is no one watches it. Right. But there's but there's no expectation. So you could either have like some huge viral hit and and you know get your client's name in the papers for a news cycle, or wow. no one sees it and like who cares? Yeah, that's a. It's genuinely a genius approach. Because, yeah, it's like it's, it's like oh, your actor hasn't tried to do comedy yet. Well, let's see if it works. And if it doesn't, yeah. who cares? And if it does, you now have a new thing to try to pitch them on. Which is um, which is sort of what I did. Like I I I wrote this um, 
I did this video, this fake movie trailer for like a Weird Al Yankovic biopic. Uh-huh. Um, it was like a real serious Weird Al Yankovic biopic and uh-huh. made it look like a drama and uh, <laughs> and got and Aaron Paul played Weird Al. Oh, wow. In the trailer. Um, and he like wasn't a comedy guy, like has no interest in doing comedy and was like actually kind of ner- he felt like it was risky for him to do this thing. Yeah. Um, and and, you know, thankfully, he was like so happy with how it came out. Weird right. Al actually still shows that trailer at like all of his concerts. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> Which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, I went and saw him at the Greek like two years ago and went backstage and Aaron Paul actually happened to be at the show too. <laughs> I like <laughs> hadn't seen him since we made that video. Oh, how cool. Oh, how cool. Yeah. I like that that's like, if you see Morrissey, he plays the the meat is murder thing behind him. I like that Weird Al plays that behind <laughs> him at his shows. That's awesome. Yes. Um, I'm curious when the, the, or maybe not so much when, but how it felt going from making funnier die shorts and, and things like that to, to doing, um, like syndication TV. Cause you know, like you've obviously, you mentioned Silicon Valley, uh, you did an episode of the office, the new girl, Brooklyn nine, nine. Um, yeah. I've always wondered, uh, I've always wanted to ask, and this is kind of what made me extra excited to, to have the conversation with you is I've always wondered as someone who you know, it consumes television and and like everyone else, how it feels for a director to come on just to do one episode of a show that's especially already established like that. Like what kind of pressures or or like what is, I guess just in general, what's that like hopping into something like that? Yeah, I mean, it it depends. It's a little easier, I think, on the show when you get in there early. You know, I've directed a... um, a bunch of shows like in their first season where I come on for one episode, but it's in the first season and everyone's still trying to kind of figure things out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas something like the office. Yeah. You were like 2012 on that. Yeah. 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 You, um, were, you that was an established show. <laughs> like, I mean, I was, yeah. I directed the office after Steve Carell had already left. Exactly. Was like, yeah. 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 <laughs> like the show, yeah. The show had run its course for a lot of people, I think <laughs> at that point already. Um, so that was and and on top of the pressure on top of that was the office was my first episode of network television. Oh wow. So prior to that like I I I made the jump from funny or die um uh I I got the opportunity to direct this MTV pilot this show called Death Valley um which ended up getting picked up to series and that sort of jumped me into like the basic cable weird comedy directing world okay so i did a bunch of episodes of ntsf sd suv which was paul shear's oh, Adult right. swim show um, yeah i did like ha- half of the episodes in season one half the episodes in season two i directed a couple of episodes at eagle heart um on adult swim with chris elliott um and uh and i and then i randomly got this office episode um i i had had a general meeting with um with one of the eps on the show and it was just a really good meeting and by the end of it he just like offered me um mindy kaling had was supposed to direct this episode of the office and she had a bail like last minute i think she wrote a book and she was going on a book tour so she's gonna miss a big chunk of prep okay so i was 
I, I just had this random general meeting, just a kind of high, like get to know you meeting with this producer. <laughs> uh-huh. And at the end of it, he was like, what are you doing in two weeks? Oh and I was God. like, nothing. And he's like, would you be interested in directing the office? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, luckily, like what, what made the experience a little more comfortable for me is that I, I had been on an, in an improv group with Ellie Kemper, who was on the show. Okay. Um, I had worked with Ed Helms a little bit and knew him from UCB and like okay. knew him when I was in my early 20s, just like being at parties with him. Oh, wow. Um, so like I knew him. Zach Woods is another person that I came up with at UCB. So I knew him and all three of those people were on the show. So that's comforting, at least for sure. So like when I showed up for prep, you know, during a lunch break when they were all, you know, the whole cast was filming. I got a very warm welcome and I got three cast members from the show to like introduce me to everyone, oh, That's nice. which took so much pressure off. Um, yeah. Although there was still, there was still quite a bit of pressure. I mean, it's the, it was, uh, I think the eighth season of the show. Um, yes, really the my ju- thought process the was jury like, duty episode. Yeah. 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 I was like, what am I bringing to the table here? Like what, yeah. <laughs> you know, what am I going to tell these? I'm not going to tell anyone anything about their character that they don't already know. That's exactly kind of where my head is at with this. Like, you know, especially coming to a show that's so established, like how hard is it to feel comfortable for doing one episode? Like, <sighs> yeah, it's, I mean, kind of hard, I think. Kind of hard. Um, you know, you don't want to do, you don't want to, you want to make it look and feel like the show everyone knows and loves. Yeah. Um, but you don't want to like rip off, you know, you're fighting this urge to like, <laughs> like, I don't want to do things that they've done before on the show. Right. Like I know Jim has to look into the camera periodically, but it's right. like, I don't, I don't want to play <laughs> that card too many times because yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want everyone there to be like, oh, look at this hack. He's yeah, doing, he's doing o- the thing. Like he's, he's directing the office right now, but really it's like his version of office fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you know, you you, I don't know. You get you go in there. You give you have the right. You know, TV is very much like a writer's medium. Um, you know, you have, you have the writer sitting right there with you. Um, after a take, you you discuss things with them, and then you go in, and you just gotta have to be comfortable giving the actors those notes. And I mean, I think you have to go into a situation like that. Knowing that, like, you're going to contribute some gems. You're going to have a few ideas that are like, oh, that's a great idea. Let's shoot the scene this way. Like, it could be something as small as, like, the way that you have a character enter the scene is a little bit different than it was in the script. You pitch it out on set. Everyone thinks it's a good idea. It really works. And at the end of the day, you can go back and look at that episode and say, like, oh, yeah, that... That moment is a moment that wouldn't have happened had I not been the person that I've. Oh, but for sure. But you, you know, you also have to understand that, like, it's not your show and it's not your movie. It's like, right. You know, so, so don't be too bold in this situation. Just like you're there to contribute your ideas and keep the ship running and be likable and don't derail things and um <laughs> <laughs> don't go in trying to be 
David Fincher. You're like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring a real David Fincher vibe to this. Yeah, episode. right. And they, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're not gonna break format. And, and in fact, yeah. during prep, they tell you black and white. We're going black yeah. and white this episode. Yes. <laughs> you know, they tell you exactly how the show. There's rules to filming a show like that. You know, every show has its 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 own visual language, and there's there's rules to it. To the office, it was like. You never turn, like we shoot it like a real documentary. You never turn the camera around to get coverage on the other side of a conversation. You have to stage everything in a a way where Mm -hmm. there can always be a camera catching the moment. Um, So it's real. So directing the office was, was, it was unique in that way that every scene is, Involves a lot of choreography between the actors and the cameras. Everyone's sort of doing this dance together at the same time. And like, that's the thing that you need to figure out. That's what you have to go in there with as a director. Um, Okay, I have an 11 person scene in the bullpen of Dunder Mifflin. (laughs) Um, I know I have two cameras that are capturing everything. This person has to enter. This person has to enter. This person has to exit. This person has to be at the copy machine when they say this line. Now I have to just like do all the math and figure out like where to put everyone to make sure that the cameras can swing over and grab them for that reaction shot that you need to punctuate a joke. Right. And you also have to like not have an ego and you have to understand that like once you get there, there's going to be an actor that's going to say like, I wouldn't come in through that door or I wouldn't be carrying this thing in my hand in this scene. I what I think I'd do it this way. And you have to on the fly be able to like figure out your new way to block the scene that still checks all the boxes you need to check. I oh, think this man. is the really long way of saying that like, yeah, it's kind of, I guess it is kind of <laughs> difficult. <laughs> no, I mean, this, <laughs> I mean, a lot this of pressure. Is, yeah, this is all, I mean, that's also fascinating. It's like you're, you're answering all those questions and that's, yeah, I've, I've always, I've always just wanted to know how, how that is for, for directors just coming on. So I, I appreciate yeah. you giving that insight. No, for sure. As I wanted to bring up, so you did a, not too long ago, you did a show called uh, Son of Zorn, which is which actually mixed animation with live action. And I'm and I'm wondering if when you were doing that show, if uh, you had those thoughts of like, wow, this is now kind of like every element of what I was ever interested in kind of all culminating into one show. I will say that that thought process is what landed me the job. <laughs> okay, yeah. So like, I mean, the fact that I like rolled in, I, I think they had trouble kind of finding a director that really got it and really understood um, like what what Lord and Miller were going for when they had this mm-hmm. idea. Um, yeah. And I came rolling in I with like my Thundercats tattoo. <laughs> I was like, look, come on. It's a show. Like I direct comedy and I'm like a big cartoon nerd and I have a freaking Thundercats tattoo. I went to school for animation. Like, <laughs> Yeah. I'm kind of like there. there's there's never been a show that's been more made for me and my sensibilities. Yeah. How was making that show? It looks it looked like it would have been a really difficult show to make because uh, obviously there's not a live action cartoon in the scenes when you're filming them. Yeah, it was a very difficult show to make. It broke me. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it was a really difficult experience. There was a lot of like behind the scenes drama on that show that yeah. I won't get into. But like sure. that that was a difficult part of it. And mm-hmm. on top of that, 
it was also technically difficult. Like it's a thing that we were doing something that no one in network television had done. Um, you know, obviously it had been done before in movies like who framed Roger Rabbit. Right. Yeah. Uh, does it very well. Um, but who framed Roger Rabbit had a gigantic budget and the time to figure it out. Um, whereas we were creating son of Zorn on a crazy condensed TV schedule, which didn't change for, for our show, you know, that like me, what I mean is that like the way that all of these network sitcoms that you watch work is, you know, the writers write an episode, you have a, the table read for that episode. The day that the table read happens, the director starts prepping to shoot that particular episode. While the director is prepping, the script is being rewritten um, based on the notes that came out of the table read. Right. And then the following week, like Friday of that w- Friday of that week, they turn in the final version of the script. Hopefully it gets approved by the network. And then the following week, that show is being directed and shot. Yeah. Not a lot of time. <laughs> not a lot of time. <laughs> and, a lot of for, time. And, and, you know, for a show like The Office, it's a little easier you know, these shows that are a little more contained or it's like, okay, maybe you got to swap out a couple props because of like a yeah. different gag that got written. But when, when when you're trying to figure out a show that is so technically difficult where it's like there's a character that's not there that you're going to have to draw in and, yeah. and, and what, you're going to have to like build certain rigs for, okay, let's see, there's a scene where Zorn has to open the fridge and get something out of the fridge. God, that's so complicated. If it's Michael <laughs> Scott walking and getting something out of the fridge, you don't even think about it at all. Right. <laughs> but if yeah. it's Zorn getting something out of the fridge, it's like, great. Okay. We got to build a rig and hide a rig to open and close the fridge. Now, um, what, let's see, the thing that he gets out of the fridge, that thing's going to be live action and you can't have a cartoon holding an actual live action thing. Right. But we need to see the real object in the scene. So we would have to like take the object photograph it from a bunch of different angles which then would have to be like animated into zorn's hand in the scene and zorn doesn't Jesus. move zorn moves at a different so i this this is sort of my fault <laughs> yeah. i wanted him to really look like an old hanna barbera i wanted him to, i wanted zorn to have kind of shitty animation Okay. <laughs> I wanted him to feel like he was really pulled out of like a cheap 80s action 80s, cartoon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um and uh for that reason his frame rate was different than oh. the frame rate of the live action stuff. Yeah. So he was animated on twos, which means that every frame of Zorn is two frames. Like normal film normal people moving around it's 24 frames per second. Zorn is 12 frames stretched out over 24 frames. So when he's holding an object in his hand, like we can't like in who framed Roger Rabbit when the weasels are holding guns, they put gun, they put real guns on rods and move them around and they just had to animate the weasels hand around that gun. 
well, we couldn't do that because the object Zorn's touching can't move at a different frame rate than Zorn because the arm that's tethered to that object will then be moving at a different frame rate than the rest of Zorn's body. Wow. Yeah. Oh my so God. it was like th- so much to think and like whatever we painted ourselves into that corner. Um, <laughs> but having to do that on like a weekly basis. Oh, it reminds me of uh, like, I mean, South Park is notoriously known for like making their show in like a week. And oh, uh, so jealous. They made, <laughs> yeah, they made that they made that episode talking shit on Family Guy. And then I remember they're like, is Family Guy going to respond? And I remember uh, Seth MacFarlane just being like, it takes us like nine months to make one episode. So by the time we would respond, it would not really make sense. So uh, right. I don't know. Fuck South Park, I guess. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, That's so it, funny. The last show that you just did was uh, was that show Die Hard, which has um, I was I was looking at the writers on it and the fact that there's a comedy writer and then also the writer who did like the John Wick movies like <laughs> that is that that's <gasps> crazy and i'm wondering what that was like making that show having those people be the the writers like did they mesh as as uh did they mesh really well or was it difficult to kind of like figure out both person's vision for how well, things no. are going to be made see this is an interesting one because so the john i've never met the john wick writer oh okay um, and his name is on so it's kind of a complicated one he wrote the the original version of Die Hard. It was called Action Scene. Okay. Um, and uh, let me actually take one more step back and say that although it looks like a TV series, um, it was on Quibi. The, the episodes are 10 minutes long each. Really, it's a movie. It's an 85-minute movie broken up into 10 chapters. Oh, interesting. And the way that Quibi worked worked because Quibi went Quibi went out of business <laughs> and disappeared from the app store about a month after Die Hard appeared. Um <sighs> but Roku just bought Quibi's I all of just, Quibi's content. So I just saw that and I was gonna yeah. ask how I wonder how that's gonna work going forward if if it's gonna just be put up on a, a different network or if Roku starting their own network. Well you know the, how- the the way that Quibi content worked at Quibi worked just as an exhibitor. So they paid um they paid to get these projects made, but so like Die Hard, they put up the money for Die Hard, but Kevin Hart, Kevin's production company owns Die Hard. Oh, okay. Um, Quibi only had the rights to exhibit the version of Die Hard that is 10 episodes, like 10 mm. chapters. <laughs> okay. Um, and that they have exclusive rights for two years after those that two-year window is up, Kevin Hart can then put Die Hart back together as a feature film and put it on Netflix or Amazon right. or, or wherever. Yeah. So eventually, in like a year and a half, people will be able to watch Die Hart as a movie on a streaming service. And since no one really watched it on Quibi, because Quibi like went under so quickly, yeah. Um, yeah, there's like a Kevin Hart movie that no one has ever seen that's like in the can, like waiting to be. <laughs> you directed the whole thing, right? Yeah, and we shot it like a movie. Yeah, is that like kind of in a way your first film? Like your first like movie that you made then? 
Yeah, this is a conversation that I have in so many like general meetings now with like movie oh, execs because yeah. I'm really trying to direct films now. Yeah, you're like, well, I kind of um, did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, so that show Die Hard. And I'm like, well, you know, it's actually the a film. movie and I wish yeah. I could show it to you, but like I'm not right. even, I don't have a copy of it because it's under lock and key and it's right. and you, you can't even go watch it on Quibi now. So it's just this it's yeah. just back to being an idea that I have made something. Like You're like, but I could show it. you the IMDb page, IMDb yeah, page yeah. for it. It's real. Like, <laughs> yeah. look, I can. I have Kevin Hart's phone number. Okay, I can. T- yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, John Travolta is in this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, originally, this thing was called Action Scene, and it was written by Derek Kolstad, who wrote um, uh, who wrote John Wick. Um, Quibby. It, it really wasn't that funny or I, I don't know they, they, there was a big rewrite that was done um by tripper clancy who's who's more of a comedy writer who wrote mm-hmm. um that movie stuber right uh, with dave batista and, and kumail nanjiani um and uh i mean that the version that tripper wrote is so completely different from the version that derek uh colstead wrote okay but it like went into arbitration with the Writers Guild and Derek got credit for it because he was just like the first one in the door and the first one that wrote the first version of the script. Um, so it. even though like he was gone by the time I came onto the project and I've never met him, spoken to him, <laughs> emailed with him. Right. And, didn't, and, and used a different version of the script. His, you know, he's still he's still on it. Oh, that's um, awesome. It's, I, if you could sum up like your first experience making a film, like was there something different about that that really did feel different than um, than doing TV? Well, you know, this, see, Die Hard's a really tricky one too because I replaced another director. Oh, okay. <laughs> so like not only did the writer get replaced, but like a director got replaced as well. Um, I got hired... Um, like I got the script sent to me on a Friday night and it was like, if you like this, you have to say yes tomorrow and then get on a plane Monday and just like, oh my God. <laughs> and the crew has already started working on prep. Wow. So I, I basically flew to Atlanta two days after I read it and um, started prepping. Damn. Coincidentally, like the production designer was my production designer from Son of Zorn. He like had moved to Atlanta. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> he was already working on it. Um, so it was it's like a, it. It kind of yeah. sounds like between all these different things you've worked on, that it really is a very small world. Where like you, oh, you turn around, and you're small. like you're like oh, everybody. You know, I've worked on this show with this person and this show on this person. It's it seems like it's a very uh, small pond when you when you actually start doing the work. Yeah, it, it 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 really is. It really is. You cross paths with a lot of the same people. Uh, I don't want to take up any more uh, any more of your time. We're we're past an hour here, and I just I wanted to to I wrap up every episode by asking. Um, do you remember the first time where you felt like you were doing the thing that you had been working so hard towards, whether it's directing or writing or or whatever that moment was for you? Um. It's funny. It's such a gradual. It's such a gradual thing that you don't. It's hard to recognize those moments um, when you're in them. In retrospect, you can look back, I think, and say like, oh, wow, like I really, I guess I had made it at that point. (laughs) Um, 
certainly the episode of the office that I directed was one of those moments. Um, just like being on the set of this TV show that I had watched for eight years and mm. knowing that, oh, on Monday morning, I'm going to show up to this set and I'm going to be telling all these actors, like, you stand here, you stand there. Right. <laughs> Can you say this a little bit different? Like, I'm going to be telling Dwight from The Office to say this line a little bit different. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is a show that I've been watching since I like first, you know, was taking comedy classes. Yeah. But I think one real like, oh, I've made it moment that sticks out in my head. I made a, a video uh, when I was at Funny or Die. Um, I made this video with Pee Wee Herman. Mm -hmm. um, and Pee Wee's Big Adventure is, was and is my all-time favorite movie oh. uh, that I have seen a million times and like have the whole thing memorized. And I was obsessed with Pee Wee's Playhouse as a kid. So when I was at Funny or Die, I made this video. Um, with uh paul rubens when he he was doing that peewee herman live show okay and it was like on the set of peewee's playhouse that they had recreated oh. and i had like one hour to shoot with him and i went and like filmed this little bit with him uh and like the playhouse puppets globies in it and cherry and <laughs> magic oh. screen yeah and uh it was like an insane dream come true taking pictures of myself on the playhouse set and just like um yeah, but I had such a it was it was such a, a small amount of time, really, like one hour just to like get this whole thing done. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember Paul Rubens was like very skeptical of like, all right, I'm shooting this stupid thing. I don't know how this is going to come out. I know he's like very precious about his Pee Wee character. Sure. Um, so I filmed this thing and then I cut it together myself that evening and emailed it for his approval and he loved it. And then. Ah. And then he invited, and then the show, he, he loved it. And then the show moved to, uh, uh, th this is when they were doing the test run for it in LA. He ended up doing the show on Broadway. He did this Broadway run and he invited me to come to the show. You know, if you want to come see the show on Broadway, come see it. So I took my sister. Uh, so we went to New York, my sister and I, who, who lives in the city, we went to this Pee Wee Herman, uh, the Pee Wee Herman live show. I mean, she used to watch as children. We watched Pee Wee's Playhouse together. So it was like an yeah. amazing experience for us. And uh, he gave us like incredible seats. We were like fifth row center. Oh. And after the show, we went backstage and he was like telling my sister how talented he thought I was. Oh, my God. <laughs> and like that moment. That like that was it. I'm like, wow, this is so insane. Like the fact that my sister gets to be here for the like we left and she was just like, I can't believe Pee Wee Herman in full costume was just telling me I love your brother so much. Oh, He's my such God. a talented director. <laughs> um, like that is the moment I think where I'm like, wow, like I'm I this is what I should be doing. Yeah. Like my child, like one of my childhood heroes is like giving me compliments to my face and oh, to my so family cool. members. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, yeah, I thought that was like, that was such an amazing moment that really, really sticks out for me. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, that story, that story, I'm going to be honest with you. This is, this is a podcast first. Made me a little misty eyed. That's very sweet. <laughs> That's like a very sweet story. That's so yeah. cool. That's seriously oh, so cool. You. I yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And, I, and thank you seriously so much for coming on the show. This was a, a really fun talk for me. Oh, thanks for having me. This was a, this was a blast. Yeah.
Thank, thanks again. Yeah, thank you, man. Talk soon. All right, bye. All right, bye. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. And if you can spare a moment to give us a rating and review on Apple, it helps the show gain more visibility and that can make all the difference. Thank you, and I'll see you again next week. Yes.